From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Helping me answer that question in the positive, as always, my two sidekicks here, Charles Morgan. Charles, are you there, mate? I am, Grant. How very, very good to hear your dulcet tones. boy, And joining us also, because without him, what will we have, Charles? Just you and me. That'd be just uh, like Statler and Waldorf in the box of the Muppet <laughs> Show. We have uh, the great and good Roger Mitchell. Hi, Rog. <laughs> Hi, hi, Grant. How are you? And interesting times. Good to hear both of you. Best time of the week for me. Interesting times, to be sure, Rog. I mean, we, we, we have a fantastic guest joining us shortly, uh, Jeff Slack of the Cognizant Aston Martin Formula One team. But uh, before we get into that, it's, it's really, uh, we can't <laughs> let this one slip by, Rog, even though it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really a, a longer conversation for a different show, but we can't let this uh, European Super League debacle um pass us by without comment on it you know obviously this is something that you have been talking about um for a long long time and you've been you've been way ahead of the pack on this and and it's really it's come to pass just as you said it it would so what were your thoughts when you saw the 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 news drop on uh, sunday i guess it was when just just before i might add or just after fulham were robbed in the 98th minute yeah that was by, tra- uh, that Arsenal. was tragic and and indeed you know one of the one of the things that the fans have been saying that in the last couple of days about the, the the glories of football listen what what do i say about this let's break this down a little bit um is the direction of travel that we've talked about on the show uh, you me and giles for three years has it been confirmed this week yes it has yes it has this was going to happen um, they want to do this. This is their mentality. You can't think that you're going to bring in people with an American sport background and not think that they want to change the game in their image together with big finance that we've had on the show many, many times. It was all leading up to this, wasn't it? Um, but then what happens? What happens is what you and Giles have always said. They underestimate the importance of the fans in Europe. Um, which is different in America. You know, uh, we, we've written, we've spoken and written about this so many times about the the mismatch, the bridging communication between big finance and the European sports culture. Uh, what I would say um, is let's not um, mix up what is probably the worst ever PR and comms execution I've seen in my career with a direction of travel. The direction of travel is clear. What we saw over the last 48 hours was Buster Keaton. And I I truly cannot believe it. I've had some conversations with one of the clubs. They called me last night. Uh, I'm friendly with one of them at a high, high level. And he he, he was shell-shocked. And I said, listen, you know, all the PR you've done is about money. You actually had your only guy you put forward, I believe was Perez. Um, and uh, all he said was, oh, the clubs need the money or otherwise they're bust. Uh, and you allowed 
you allowed uh, UEFA to come out of this like Robin Hood. And and like all of us that know football know that UEFA and FIFA are a pretty easy mark if you want to have a go at them. You you should have been softening them up. You should have been talking about their 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 their, their, their trials and tribulations over the years. Two presidents of FIFA and UEFA both ended up in cuffs. Um, but no, you come out, you talk about you need the money, you talk about you're breaking away, you don't make clear, you don't make clear that you still want to play in the national leagues, and you, you're lying about how much you're going to pay down in subs- subsidies. Yes, it was in the front page of your PR, but the statement's not enough. Something as important as this needs two or three months lead-in PR-wise, and then when you leak it, as you did on Sunday, to three or four people, and that went okay, even though you didn't make the half-nine deadline, let's say that as well, you've got to follow up with a barrage of PR Monday, Tuesday, and and so what I would say, Grant, um, let's not confuse direction of travel with awful execution, and I do want to give you and Giles, all the credit for, you know, what we say at the top of every show. This is about the fan. The fans have spoken. Now, without giving too much away, Rog, the, the club that contacted you, does it rhyme with Bathletico by any chance? Just, just as I'm just, no. I, I, I don't, don't give anything away. Don't give anything away. Um, look, you know, uh, it, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, we watched this thing unfold and you're right. It could not have been, <laughs> been handled anywhere. I mean, it, it was abject the way it was handled. Um, I, I was encouraged by the, by the backlash, um, from the fans. It was predictable, but it, it, it was solid right across the football spectrum. And and I think, you know, that, that definitely had a big say in it, but, but, you know, as I've taken this away, I, I, I keep reading headlines today about how the European Super League is dead in the water. It's finished. I, I think it's going to be like you know jason in one of these horror films right this thing is going to it's going to keep coming back because you're right this direction of travel is precisely what this is about right this is they're going to keep nudging at this they're going to keep trying to find ways to get this done um maybe it's dead in the water and i and i hope to god it is but i just have a nasty feeling that that you're you're right about this direction of travel and and we've we've got a long way to go in that direction and and, and every step of the way we're going to be fighting exactly what they put in front of us last weekend grant um when you say i hope it never comes back again this is where i think you and i come from different perspectives because you rightly so as an english football fan um don't see anything wrong with the status quo the status quo for you works big time you get the best of both worlds I put well, until we get relegated um, and then, then obviously well, the you know what i mean sucks. even even when no, you get no. relegated you've got two years of parachute payments that would put small leagues to shame you are rolling in money comparatively what i'm talking about is everybody now dancing around the fire high-fiving uh singing kumbaya where does this leave us? This leaves us, let us not forget, this leaves us with a Swiss model Champions League. And what are the characteristics of the Swiss model of the Champions League that uh, UEFA are proposing? Um, guaranteed performance and payments to yeah. big clubs. Huge weighting towards the big clubs. Small clubs having to go through three qualifying rounds. So let's not, and this is why I'm so angry about the PR execution, this is given a get out of jail free card to UEFA for everything that we believe they need to do to reform. Not least of which is the imbalance between the big leagues and the small leagues. 
uh, and 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 you know, I, I looked at this and I and and I put out that tweet and it got it went viral. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of anger that the the last minute um, hand wringing by the Gary Nevilles of this world. Um, Probably, well, where have you been the last 20 years, Gary? A lot of us say in the smaller leagues, right? You know, but the interesting thing for me watching this unfold and, you know, I, I do want to say it wasn't just like, oh, I pre you know, we, we predicted this from nowhere. Loads of people in the industry have known these conversations have been going on. Loads and loads and loads. And, you know, uh, the timing was always uncertain. So um, when it, it, get, it gets leaked on Sunday to Martin Samuel, the, um, the Sunday Times, etc., cetera, um, you're thinking, why is it only 12? Why is it only 12 of the 15? And you're thinking, nah, there's something wrong here. Who, who are the three that are not involved? It's... Dortmund, it's Bayern, oh, and it's PSG. And then you think PSG, that's the one to look at. Um, PSG is owned by Qatar. Qatar owns beaten rights for a lot of the leagues. They're probably unhappy that that was managed that way. They sponsor a lot of the clubs. You know, they're even a sponsor of Bayern Munich. Um, they're they deeply embedded in the status quo but no more so than the fact that they have got a geopolitical epic event very, very soon called the FIFA World Cup. And when they heard all um, oh, the vitriol around who who's not going to be allowed to play and, and the fact that the whole thing might have been thrown up in the in the air as a, as a collateral damage, I was just looking at PSG and um, they, they, sat, they sat on the sidelines um, I think probably they were very happy to sit in the sidelines, whereas I believe Abu Dhabi, when I say Abu Dhabi, I mean Man City, they probably were press ganged in, into going along with that because, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a lot, as you say, Grant, behind this story that some of us that have been a wee bit in the inside know is much bigger than the most appalling 48 hours of PR any of us will ever see. Yeah, look, I, it's funny when you, you bring up Gary Neville there and um, I, 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 I have a different view on that to you. But I, I totally understand what you're saying about, you know, where have you been? You've been a Sky Pundit, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, he didn't have to come out the way he did and call out Sky and BT Sport and the BBC and call them all out the way he did, right? And, and a lot of these big-name football players who have influence and who could have been diplomatic, right? And we've we've talked about athletes being diplomatic and having their sponsorship in the back of their mind before they make political statements. Yep. And although this isn't yep. an overtly political issue, it, it, it is if, if in the context. So I, I you know, I, I, I respect the fact that Neville and Carragher and Ferdinand and all these guys actually did come out and and took a stand and and Lineker and you know, all the big name ex players, Shearer, all of them, righty. They yep. all came out and and made and said their piece. So they didn't have to do that. I, I, I take your point, but I, I keep coming back, Rog, to the way the 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 World Golf Championships came about. You know, the, this WGC tour, because a long time, well, actually not that long before the WGC happened, Greg Norman was trying to put together what he was. A, he was a figurehead of of an attempt to create a World Golf Tour, um, and it got shouted down and Greg Norman was was made a pariah and it was all, you know, he, he was made the bad guy like Kerry Packer was with the with the cricket in the in the, in the 70s. And sure enough, 
uh, it wasn't long before the PGA Tour came up with their own version of Greg Norman's World Golf Tour um, and uh, and made it their own. So I do wonder whether FIFA and UEFA will ultimately come up with their own Super League and um, and just kind of adopt the idea, however it suits them. I don't, I yeah, don't know. I hope Grant, th- this is th- this is the crux of this. Uh, let, let's not anybody be um, naive on this. The the Swiss model Champions League and the the Super League aren't that different as a product. Right. Certainly not to the eyes of somebody like me. They ain't that different, mate. So what is different? What is different is control and who gets to put their badge on it and and and, and who's monetizing it and, and 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 power. It's really about big swinging dicks, isn't it? So what I think will happen now is exactly what you say. I think that um, probably brokered by that little country I referred to earlier, Qatar who are very, very smart, I tend to think, um, they will say, look, you know, we need to go in this direction anyway. It's clear now you're not going to be allowed to do this out with the governance of football, whether that's UEFA or FIFA. So it'll be called something different. It will have private equity money um, and it will be, I'm sad to say, totally dominated by the Hollywood clubs because, Grant, that's what sells. You know, uh, you, you... No, I you, get it. I get it. You saw in the golf, I think even, you know, in the last few hours, this, you know, the PGA Tour coming up with um, uh, uh, bonus payments for the top stars or they call it impact. I'm afraid mm-hmm. to say, do not m- make this uh, a kind of like victory that, you know, the the the, the, the small man has won. Uh, the direction of travel is clear um, and people want to see the Hollywood players and the Hollywood teams who, who controls that is what started this uh, week. The first war uh, battle was lost by the big clubs. I'm not sure how it pans out, but honestly, all the trends are in play. And, and, and hopefully, as we've said for three years, people with EQ and a love for the game like you, like Giles, will be having a strong say in how it goes forward. That's realistically, Rogers. That's all we can ask for, right? That's that's all we can ask for. I, I agree with you about the direction of travel. It, this is this is a much longer, much deeper, much broader topic for another day, yeah. and we'll 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 come and talk about this properly because uh, we have Jeff Slack joining us shortly. Um, but uh, we, as I said, we couldn't we couldn't just ignore it and jump in and chat with Jeff. We we had to kind of talk about this because it's uh, it's such a big deal and and it and it's still yeah. unfolding. So so let let's. Let's park this for another day, and um, and why don't you tell uh, our audience a little bit about our guest today? Well, this week again, uh, thanks to Pump Jack DataWorks, uh, we have got uh, Jefferson Slack of um, Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One team, and uh, thirty years. Uh, if not more, at the very top end of the sports industry, um, Jeff and I have known each other, I think, for about 20 years. I met him in Milan when he was at at Inter Milan. Um, We then did a bit of business together where uh, I brought in IMG when he was at IMG as a major shareholder into Give Me Sport, which was a a digital media publisher. Um, So so Jeff and I know each other pretty well, and um, he is, as I think we'll hear on this interview, one of the voices of immense, immense insight into the moving waves and plates of the sports industry. Uh, and I think um, we're going to enjoy this very, very much, guys. Fantastic. Well, why don't we bring him in? So, uh, Jeff Slack, welcome to Are You Not Entertained? Thanks for making the time. That's great to be here, Roger. 
Fantastic. Fantastic to have you here, especially as we've got the, the Formula One season just starting. Um, on the show with my with my colleagues, Grant and Giles, we like to get to know our guests a little bit better at the start. So we'd like to start a little bit, Jeff, not with the obvious questions. Tell us a little bit about Jefferson Slack and sport growing up and what got you into what is an amazing career that's touched every aspect of the sports industry. Where did it all start? <laughs> well, I think maybe like a lot of the, the people on this podcast that grew up as a, a guy that loved sports, but wasn't really that good. <laughs> so, wasn't a good to make it uh, professional at anything, but you know, so what do you do if you're sport mad kid, but you're not, you know, the next, uh, David Beckham or whatever, you, uh, you, you try and figure out how to work in sports. So, um, um, I, I've been a, a cyclist and, uh, kind of created my own team around that and sold sponsorships for that. And when I got out of graduate school, I, um, met a bar, dated a bartender who was the bartender serving the guys at this, at this agency called ProServe that some of you might yep. remember. Yeah. And she yeah. introduced me to the guys and, you know, not six months later, I finally got a job uh, working at, at ProServe. So it was, it was, uh, uh, I mean, they say, don't go to the bar. I think that's not always the right uh, <laughs> solution. But anyway, so it was just a way to, way, way to take a, a passion of mine and, and turn it into a career. No, I'm just dying to ask in those early cycling team sponsorships, how much were you selling them for in the early days? Oh, that's a great. So I, I think, uh, Giles, our budget, we had a, a company called IME, which was a local uh, team, Panasonic. It's maybe 100 grand a year, 200 grand to fund a whole team of six guys traveling around like a band in a big van in the United States. Fantastic. And then uh, and the funny thing was I would have kept going probably. We were very close to Corona. Uh, but then that fell through and that was like $250,000. This was us, uh, pretty much only. And, uh, that fell through. So I had to get a job. Wonderful. I just, I just love the fact you were doing it way back when, and it just carried on going, but this is in yeah. your blood because anyone who's worked at IMG for as long as you did. And as someone who's been a buyer from IMG that, you know, the type, they're, they're just people who are just born, born to sell. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jeff, tell us a little bit. Uh, the start of your career was very much dominated by basketball. Um, tell us a little bit where your relationship was. Was it a player agency? Was it rights? Was it uh, around the, the NBA? Because it's quite an amazing story. Right. It was, uh, so as I mentioned, I, my first job, formal job in sports uh, was at ProServe, agency founded by Donald Dell which was a smaller version of IMG, as you yep. guys well know, kind of Mark McCormick and Donald Dell were two founding fathers really of the industry. If you think about the business of sports and, and, and in Donald's case, he started with Arthur Ashe, Dan Smith. Uh, he was captain of Davis cup team and he created this agency ProServe, and they had built up a very strong team sports group, which was mainly basketball and some American football. And I joined, that was my first job. And they had kind of a who's who's list of, of athletes such as Michael Jordan and Dominic Wilkins, Patrick Ewing, uh, probably the really a top list of basketball players. My role in that was to market the, the players. So I wasn't involved in the recruiting nor in the contract negotiations with the teams, but really to kind of monetize it and service the, the players uh, that we had in our books. 
Jeff, what was that like? Because um, that really, that that era, the, the Jordan, Wilkins, that era was really kind of the beginning of basketball players as major sponsorship brands. You know, we had we had the kind of Bird and Johnson era just before them, yeah. but it really wasn't until Michael Jordan and, and the Air Jordans and that that we really saw those athletes become just powerhouses. So what was that like watching that entire industry take off? Well, it was uh, it was really cool. I mean, I think a couple things happened. The the, the 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 shoe and apparel industry was very fragmented then, and people forget. Maybe if you read Phil Knight's great book Shoe Dog, you you see that there was no guarantee Nike was going to be what it is today. And you know, my fourteen year old think Nike's is the greatest brand. He has no idea that you were saying in the mid eighties they were just fighting it out. Yeah, there was L A Gear and there was Reebok. Reebok, yeah, Addy obviously. So um, and it just happened that Michael almost chose Addy, but he ended up with Nike and the kind of the rest is history. So I think there was that. There was what David Stern did with the NBA. I think it's a well-cited example, but in 1979, up until 1979, the NBA finals were actually on tape delay. (laughs) So the game would happen and you wouldn't, this is the finals. You couldn't see the game until 1130 after they'd already done all of their uh, regular programming. I mean, that is just shows you where the NBA was and where David Stern took it. So I think that happened. And I think Magic and Larry were a big part of that. And I think what also happened was that the country became ready for a black athlete to market to everyone. And that's what Michael was. And, and Michael did, did that. He, he blazed all the trail for that. And then Magic actually kind of then took the playbook we'd created for Michael. But up until then, Magic hadn't been that successful. Even though Magic, obviously, yeah. just from a personality standpoint, is almost a more natural endorser than Michael. Maybe not with the flying in the Air Jordan, but just in terms of personality. Yeah. But I think Magic probably started in the NBA when, time when the NBA was one, a lot less popular, and two, and there were still these issues of drugs and a bunch of other things that had been gone on. And then also, I think probably just the, the country itself and just being realistic in terms of attitudes towards race uh, probably evolved as well. So uh, I think all those things kind of came together. And I remember probably the seminal moment was originally Michael had been with McDonald's and Coke and Chevrolet, you know, obviously he'd won a gold medal. He was all American and we, we, we followed that playbook. And then we started having discussions with Gatorade and this is back in the days of fax machine. And I remember that fax coming in from Gatorade. It was a $10 million, 10 year deal, $1 million a year, not 10 times 10. And that was just, I mean, that was mind boggling huge. Uh, so that just shows you how the industry evolved. And, and that, that was really a, a seminal moment, I think, in, in terms of getting to a seven-figure amount uh, uh, at that time. So it was, it was a lot of fun to be, to be there. Jeff, a lot of people talking about The Last Dance, um, and it's been an amazing documentary series, particularly for people like me who NBA wasn't really my thing. These were names. They weren't, it wasn't my fandom. And I'm absolutely glued to it. It's a fantastic documentary. That's a perception, obviously, filming from the time, but it's been repackaged now. Does it reflect your own memories? Is it something that had taken you back down memory lane? Do you think it's been an accurate portrayal? Or how, how, how has it resonated with you as someone who was so involved? Yeah, I think, you know, very accurate. Um, to me, it was very personal. Uh, Michael and his family were lovely people. Uh, Mrs. J is a, an amazing woman. Mr. J was just, uh, you couldn't find a nicer guy and you know the sad part you know those of us that were there when he was killed and the effect that that had on michael 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it was very accurate. I think you saw the drive that Michael Jordan had. And those of it who worked with him saw that. Uh, and you know, yes, he was extremely talented, but if you talk to basketball experts and said, okay, maybe there's 10 guys in the league with Michael's physical talents, but it was up here that, you know, that he really succeeded. And you saw that clearly came out, uh, in the, in, in, in the show. So, uh, you know, I, I, I was very accurate and also it was really fun to see footage that most of us had never seen before. That was the other great thing about that. It wasn't just replaying of, of the highlights. So, um, and did you Michael, see yourself in it? Did, did, did you feature? Did you uh, find yourself in a cameo no, by, by mistake? No, I don't think I did. Uh, my boss, David Falk, was in a lot, but that was kind of his style. So, uh, <laughs> But the other funny story, there's a story they didn't tell, uh, is that the guy George, George Kohler, who was really one of Michael's best friends, my best friend, uh, the story about how Michael and George met is, is unbelievable. So Michael was drafted by the Bulls. He flies to Chicago, 1984. And, you know, he's known, but he's not that known. Shows up and he's never been to Chicago. And the Bulls send, say they're going to send him a car to pick him up. You know, it's a 22-year-old kid coming to Chicago. Well, he can't find the car. George Kohler was a chauffeur. And he had gone to pick somebody up at the airport. And his person didn't show up. So he kind of recognized Michael. And he said it. Hey, you Michael joins the chain. He goes, do you need a ride? Because Mike Fair didn't come. Say, Michael, I, absolutely I do. There's nobody here. And that's the first person you met in Chicago was George. <laughs> and from there, I mean, George was like the mayor of Chicago. Going out with George was just, <laughs> it was another Mike. Michael really couldn't go out because it was Michael, but, but George could. And, and it's, a, it's one of those kinds of stories that are just nice in sports. And George got to see a lot of the world uh, because of that. Jeff, uh, let, me, um, let me move forward to the time that, that we met which was in the city of Milan, and you were um, in charge of everything, uh, not strictly football at, at Internazionale, Inter Milan. Um, and we, we talked a lot about your frustrations at the time, uh, about uh, working for a family-owned uh, club, very much a family DNA, um, the inability to have much of a vision, uh, an organigram that perhaps was difficult to understand why people were in certain roles. Can I ask you your experience of that? And and the, the, the takeaway question is this, have they learned anything in Italian football from the limitations that you saw in those days? I think yes and no. Uh, first, I, I mean, you can only say that uh, the Moratti family of Massimo Moratti is one of the great gentlemen you could ever meet. And did things because he just you know, had a deep in his heart a love for Inter Milan, and clearly it was an economic. Uh, it was difficult, so you know he, he sacrificed a lot of uh, of his own money to to support that team, and obviously ultimately be really successful in the Champions League. So you just have to start with that. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, you want these things to be sustainable, and even what's happening today, and what uh, you know AC Milan or Inter Inter Milan today. So you look at that and you say, well what's changed. It's just that the, the, the annual deficit's gotten bigger and the stadium hasn't changed at all. And they're relative to the other leagues. The Italian league has gone down yeah. in terms of its popularity by any measure. And um, it's, they got to look at themselves in the mirror and say, why? Because if you look back in the late nineties, we took a poll. Uh, I think the vast majority of the people in the poll would say the, the Italian Serie A was the most exciting league. By in a mile. So somehow you went yeah. from that to where, you know, Premier League has just, you know, just been un unbelievably well run and managed and got to where it's gotten. And that's through decisions and ideas that were taken and taking 
standing stadia, making them all seater, making clubs invest in stadia, uh, creating a Premier League where you know there's, there's always fights between the big and small teams. But at the end of the day, they've figured out a way to share the the money equitable enough that nobody's quitting. I mean, it's interesting today that they yeah. announced Super League, but that's a separate discussion. And 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 so you know, no, Italian football has got some structural challenges. It's got management challenges, and I think some of those have been alleviated a bit. There's obviously a lot of foreign ownership now that is going to be probably a little more rational longer term. But you still, if you can't build the stadia and you can't think long term about marketing and you're losing so much money, uh, it, it is a tough model. So it's kind of a yes and no answer, Roger. Jeff, what, what did you what did you think as you watched um, Jim Pilotta's struggles with Roma? You know, from, based on your experiences with Inter, I mean, everything you've talked about there in terms of being unable to build the stadium. Um, what, what what were you thinking as you watched that whole thing play out? Well, at the risk of saying something uh, you know, not nice about Jim Pilotta, which I don't, I only met him a couple of times, and he's obviously a very successful businessman. Um, he was naive or arrogant or both. As you think you're going to go to Rome and build a stadium in a few years, it's just not going to happen. You don't understand Italy. Exactly. So I, was always, I was always in the back, not laughing, because I don't mean to laugh, and you, you, you know, it's just not going to happen. It still hasn't happened. It's you know, you're t- country with a thousands-year history and huge impediments to anything new and politics like you could never understand. At least go in with your eyes open uh, so that when it doesn't work out, you've at least modeled in your head a worst case scenario so uh you know the problem with buying a club is you have that and the second thing is when you buy a football club the most important thing about a football club is its players that's your main asset and you ask the person that wants to buy the club well, what do you know about football players? so if i showed you a 16 year old brazilian kid versus a 16 year old Croatian, could you tell me who's it going to be a better no well then how are you going to judge this you're going to have to hire somebody that you trust to judge them. that's not even science. It's you know, it's a bit of art. So it's a it's a tough thing. And I think you see teams like at Atlanta. <laughs> why are they so good? Because yeah. they understand football. They're from there. They're Italian. They're unbel- the best managed club that I could think of in Europe, or at least one of the top three or four. But you look at their background and what they know, and they played football, and they're in football, and they're Italian. It's but, tough. It's but tough. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to watch from afar because obviously, uh, as you said, there Italy particularly is is a very very tricky place to do these things but we've seen you know we've seen foreign owners be very successful in in the uk for example you know with the the Fenway sports group and the glazers even uh, have had remarkable success and even in france there's been a lot of money thrown at football clubs and and they've had a degree of success what is it about italy that just makes it that much harder to do and and is that a one of the biggest impediments for that league in, in terms of the decline we've already spoken about I, I think starts there's lots of layers to that, Grant. I mean, first, it's uh, the structure of the league and the management of the league and the fact that, you know, it's just they've never put in really independent people to run it with a bigger picture, longer-term development of the league, and they've just never given enough power to the league. Compare that to the Premier League and Richard Scudamore and what he was able to do. And um, uh, secondly, it's just a culture where, you know, the owners, it's a battle and people have a very negative view of human nature. There isn't a sense of compromise. Third, and this isn't football's fault, you know, building something is really, really hard in Italy. And so there's just structural problems. You say the, one of the biggest <coughs> Achilles heel of Italian football is the lack of investment into stadia, where I think they, if they did it correctly, they would get huge returns because Italians love luxury and they love being treated well and they love bella figura but you're not giving them a chance to do that because you don't give them the infrastructure. 
Um, so I think it's a whole series of things. It's, it's, it's a very deep, profound, difficult challenge culturally, but it's compounded by a lack of centralized management focus on the long-term development of the sport. Jeff, g- given that, which I agree with 100%, um, it's probably been six months now, maybe more, that um, private equity, um, CVC in this case, has attempted to get uh, that kind of deal away at, at the league level. And um, as I think I expect, and, and I'd like to hear your view, uh, they haven't managed that and it's all kind of like unraveling now. Um, many people hope that private equity brings new governance to sport, but are we not seeing in Serie A that uh, with football, it is incredibly difficult when you've got big clubs, small clubs, different cultures. Is there ever going to be a match with private equity and something like Italian football? I don't know. That's a, I think that showed that it's still very difficult and entwined. And when you can only have six or seven clubs block something in the politics of it as such that despite a bunch of new foreign ownership in there, it's hard. Yeah, it's 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 very hard. I mean, I, I, the flip side is with the pandemic, there's such a need for capital that if anybody was ever going to do anything, as all these different sports entities are now looking to find outside capital, um, there's certainly the need for it. Uh, but in this case, I think, Roger, it's more that they got a better deal and they got their domestic deal done and they didn't need the money anymore. Mm-hmm. It sounded more what it was like. I think the situation changed as opposed to there's a challenge with private equity. But I think private equity will face the same internal hurdles because, you know, you can have a contract that says you're going to do something, but actually underneath it is maybe a management structure that's not ready to do the things, whereas normally in private equity, you've got the management completely aligned with you. And when you exit and make a ton of money, they do. It's not going to happen in this case. So it's, um, I think, tough. Jefferson, I'm fascinated. You've worked for two of the great agencies, obviously IMG, um, famously, and, and also Wasserman. And there's a lot of change coming. I see that Redbird has taken a stake in Wasserman, which is probably a, an yeah. interesting an interesting take on where Redbird are going. You obviously worked at IMG, a very particular moment in the company's history, which has now moved on. What, what's your feeling of the sports marketing agency that at now is? What is the role of the sports marketing agency in today's um, uh, commercial landscape, as opposed to the one that maybe all of us on, on this podcast are more familiar with growing up? I think it's a derivative of the realities of what's changed in the world. And I think that if you look at the non-U.S. agencies, they've fundamentally made lots of money or tried to make money in television rights, a little bit on sponsorships, and that the main governing bodies have realized they don't necessarily need agencies, so they've been disintermediated. I mean, take a look at the Premier League. You know, yes, an agency could buy it, but if you pay more than somebody else on a territory-by-territory basis, but it's a long way from the days that the IOC... And, and FIFA would just outsource all of this or even Champions League with team. And those margins in those days are kind of gone because the rights holders recognize those are core assets that they want to manage. So the, this, the, the universe in which you operate as an agency has changed. And as a result, the agencies themselves have changed. And if you look at IMG today and they're talking about going public, it's all based on UFC. Yeah, it is. So it's, it's an ownership 
ownership model and not a model of a of an agency where you take a commission and you do what agency represent athletes, et cetera, what agencies do. Uh, Casey's a very different situation because Casey just has a longer term view. He played in the States and I, they don't, his agency doesn't even sell much. They represent athletes and then they advise rights holders. And that's probably only going to grow because the industry itself is going to grow. So that's a, a different model, probably a little smaller scale. But I think it's a really tough business model today, Giles, uh, because even if you are the case uh, to go out and bid for big television rights, the numbers are so big and you can look what happened in the Chinese market or IMG happened with their FA cup deal. You know, it's big risks. The numbers are bigger than ever. And if the, you, you bet wrong, you lose a lot. Uh, and so it's a, it's a tricky way to make money. You don't actually own anything. And it's, it's something also that Roger and I, well, we all spoke about on one of our last shows is also, we think that a lot of the, the rights holders now are going to be learning enormously from the brands themselves about data and consumer marketing and strategic marketing, where actually the brands are going to be tasked at holding the whip hand. The agencies are the ones who are learning, not the other way around. Um, yes. As as the model is changing, it, it feels that what we talk about a lot on this show is that the commercial landscape, which is why it's so fascinating then talking to you about your, your latest iteration, is about how the commercial landscape and where the money is being made and how is very different from even 10 years ago, let alone 20. Absolutely. Well, you know that better than anyone, Giles, that you're of expertise, but there's, there's, there's no, no question about that. And the ability to be held accountable and the, the rise of social media and the, and the ability to measure all of that, it's a, it's a much different place than it was. And marketeers are much more sophisticated and you know, they're not doing it for a jolly. You really got you really to earn it. And it's, it's, you know, the pandemic's made that even harder because there's so many rights holders chasing fewer dollars uh, you know, in some ways it can kind of be a race to the bottom. So it, it definitely, you got to be on your game. Well, and it's, it's genuinely one of the things that I'm in most intrigued about is that if you think that the old sponsorship industry was based very much on obviously TV data, and then to a certain, to a greater extent about hospitality for a lot of big, uh, big clients like, like my former employee, um, employee, what's really interesting is that with hospitality having been pretty much extinguished, and yet the sports industry looking to grow, is that there's very much new paradigms of value coming into play. And actually, we still believe there's a lot of untapped value in the sports industry. Mm. So does private equity. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. But clearly on a different currency, because, I mean, back in the day, they did used to say that the HSBC uh, uh, Volavon were the best in the industry. And I'm very proud of that. But I think <laughs> we may have moved on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, if we all agree that the agency model is changing, um, interesting that, you know, the I IPO will probably get away, but let's leave that for a second. These are crazy markets for a lot of things. But tell me your view as somebody who's seen the whole iteration over the last few years, many years. What's your view of companies like Overtime or even Triller that, you know, we saw them doing the boxing at the weekend, um, apparently 1.3 million pay-per-views for basically an entertainment. You know, we, we've talked a lot about WWE on, 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 on this program. Is it changing that much or is it just maybe flavor of the moment that the whole content of the industry is moving in a different direction? Look, I think you need to be careful to think that something that is today is going to continue. And probably those of us that have been in the industry for a while 
might be a little too traditionalist and you look at the kind of traditional sports and then you look at what a UFC, for instance, has done or WWE and we probably all poo-pooed that a bit at the beginning. And that's probably a bias. That's probably not an objective view. Of course, with what you can do now in terms of streaming and social, uh, you, there's a lot of power in that. And then you combine that with what younger people care about today and it's video games. And it's a different, you know, you're not just sitting there down watching three hours of football or whatever. You're, you're consuming it and involving it. And so I think you take your hats off to those guys that uh, come in and they have an idea and they create a new industry like mixed, mixed martial arts. Uh, and, you know, a lot of us missed all of that yep. uh, because we're probably too tra- traditionalist and that's kind of on us. So I think all those things make great sense. I, it's, I'm not good enough to choose which one's going to be successful, which one isn't. I mean, if you sit, sat here today and said, what's the most successful? Probably the IPL. It's probably the most successful new league yep. ever created, uh, um, which IMG was deeply involved with, or, you know, it could be UFC or, you know, there's these things that are, which is, I think, four or five billion now or something. It's big bucks. Um, then there's a lot that didn't, didn't work. You know, say, why didn't they work? I, I don't know. But, uh, that, but back to the agency, where those things link together is that companies like IMG or Infront or any, they want to own those things. Now that's what that's it's right. about, the, 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 is, is to have long-term relationships with the ultimate rights owners so that you get some upside, equity upside. So if you help develop the sport and, 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 and that's the other theme, which I think is correct, I, I, don't, I think sports only get stronger. There's so many different ways to consume it. You have to be cog- cognizant of how people are consuming your sport. So you do change that model so that it's still appealing to young people. But uh, the sport, sports industry itself is just getting more and more sophisticated with more and more capital coming in, as you say, by any measure. Uh, so the, the big pie is growing. You just got to figure out where you're going to, which part of the pie you want to eat. I, I can't let pass uh, the, the absolute professional you are with the use of the word cognizant. That's that's fantastic, Jeff. <laughs> we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but, you know, just the last bit on the agencies that I'd like to say, uh, and, and you know, we're sponsored by Punk Jack, which is, you know, sports data company. Surely the biggest mistake all these agencies made was to just completely miss uh, the world of Opta, the world of radar genius and uh, now linked to betting and um, can you imagine the position that an IMG would be in today if it had got on board with that a little bit earlier yeah yes that's true and but I think back to something Giles said those are selling organizations I mean you go all the way back there's a story about Mark McCormick turning down the opportunity to, I think to have a good big piece of the golf channel and you know and you're like, well, wouldn't you, you have all the offers, you have all the events. And of course that ended up being worth billions. Or I remember Donald Dell, the same thing, not understanding an equity model, only understanding how much am I making on selling the sponsorship or these television rights? It's just a different mentality. And, I, and I, it's, you're an incumbent and you don't think about that. And, you know, everybody in your organization is getting incentivized by how much they sold that year and what their projections are and their budgets. And, it's just not what they do. Uh, so yeah, you're right. People missed a lot of that, but that's more. I think all industries. I mean, didn't Coke missed Gatorade yeah. and you know, you know, those guys. You know, the innovators' they, dilemma. Microsoft, Microsoft, yeah. Microsoft missed. A, yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's. I think it's more systemic than it is endemic to the sports industry. So, so Jeff, we're going to take you into where you are now. Um, an incredible man. You can tell us a little bit about him, Lauren Straw. Um, comes in contact with you and um, gives you the keys to what he's doing, not only with um, the Formula One team, but 
the whole uh, synergy with the Aston Martin brand that he also owns. Tell us a little bit about Lawrence Stroll because he doesn't seem to be a guy that suffers fools a lot, Jeff. Uh, Lawrence is a force of nature uh, with a big heart. Uh, so, um, you know, this, this is a guy who obviously has had great success in business and he's got all the toys that come with that and he could live a very nice life. He's got a very nice family and be you know, a happy guy, but it's just not in his DNA. I, I think the acquisition of Force India out of administration was probably more a labor of love because obviously his son, uh, Lance, is a, a driver and Lawrence is a passionate motorsports fan. So I think that was one thing. But then when he saw like guys like Lawrence do that most people don't, that if you could combine that team with an iconic brand like Aston Martin, you'd really have something. And he saw that some years ago and then finally he was able to effectuate that. And now all of a sudden, you know, he's put a lot of his money into it and turning a, you know, a car manufacturer around is not an easy job. No. And he's bitten off a, a big thing to do. And that's just, that's just Lawrence's ambitions. He doesn't, he's not going to sit at home even though he easily could have, he's deserved it. He doesn't need to work and all of that. So that just tells you a bit about Lawrence because, you know, it's, it's immensely stressful. Um, it's stressful as a father to watch your son go around. And obviously there was a big crash yesterday and they were fine, but you know, we saw last year what happened with, uh, with growth, yeah. John, and you got to watch your child, child do that. And I think any of us that are parents would, uh, would know that how hard that is, how proud you'd be about how hard that is. But then he's got that combined with, look, he's now got to uh, look after a, a really important British brand and a manufacturer. So, no, he's a, an ambitious guy. Um, you know, if he's upset about something, you certainly will know it. Uh, but I've, I appreciate that. And, you know, he's, as I said, is a kind of a big hearted guy that makes you want to work for Lawrence uh, apart from monetary words. You want to do your best for him because he, he he's given you the ability to do that for yourself. So um, it's been, it's been great to work for him. What is it like selling sponsorship? He says as a former buyer of sponsorship and one who resisted formula. I took HSBC out of formula one and then spent 12 years trying to be persuaded to come back in. What, yeah. what is it like selling it now? And how is it different from, from other things to sell? And, and, and therefore, what is the modern Formula One sell? What do you pitch in the corporate market? You know, uh, Giles, when I started working with Lawrence, it was pre-COVID. And before, you know, we kind of worked everything out, I was a bit concerned for the reasons that you would have been concerned at HSBC. The sustainability, some of the headwinds in the sport, skews older. Now, there's a number of things that we could say that, you know, the challenges with Formula One and then COVID hit. So there are even more challenges. But I don't know whether we were lucky or good or a bit of both. It turned out better than I ever imagined. Uh, we brought in nine new partners, not a single of, whom, of which we had ever physically met. I physically met the cognizant people for the first time at Bahrain. And as you know, uh, Giles, you know, personal relationships matter in everything, especially before you sign a big deal. You want to look the people in the eye, you want to have dinner with them, have a drink with them. We weren't able to do any of that. Nonetheless, we had great success. Uh, and I think that was attributed to a, a mixture of things in which percentage you could just decide. But the Aston Martin brand is just incredibly iconic, important. People love it. They want to be affiliated with it. So most of the companies we were talking to were B2B companies. Second, tech. 
Uh, Formula One is the best global platform. I'm going to say forget sports, but in general to tell a tech story because it's real. You know, I mean, I know rugby, you're, you're you know, very fictional. You can tell a part of a data, but, you know, pure tech, Formula One is won and lost through technology. And we have 500, 600, 700 people working on two cars. It's a genuine tech challenge. Uh, so, I, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a great storytelling platform. The pandemic actually made the tech companies even more important, as we know. None of us, none of all the things we're doing now, we're, we are, we are, we live and die by having technology uh, access to the internet and Zoom calls and all that stuff. So that that accelerated that trend, which actually was right in our sweet spot. So the, we 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 brought in a couple of B two C companies. One was Peroni, uh, which again, fantastic brand. I mean, you know, they're they're. Our partner, we receive money from them, but in a way, they're promoting us and they're running Aston Martin, so kind of a win-win, but really high-end. Um, and because we were starting from kind of a blank slate, I think we didn't have any legacy issues and challenges and things, which are always hard. As you know, you know, there was a bank before, and now there's the next bank. And we, we kind of started with a clean slate. And we, had, we put together a really dedicated sales team. Uh, and we had five or six people. That's all they do. It's a core part of our business. It's the only way that we can make incremental revenues. We don't have a stadium. We don't sell the hospitality. That's what uh, F1 does. So it's a big, big focus of what we do, and we spend a lot of time on decks. We did all that despite the fact from a social media standpoint, we're, we were very low down on the grid. Uh, since then, I hired 10 people in social media. We're the fastest growing team in social media in Formula One in an aggregate way. And you know we have big, big ambitions to get to the top of the grid there. So um, I, I think it was a, a combination of things, but it, it actually worked out better than anyone. And I, I think we're probably third on the grid now in terms of partner revenues. Um, uh, so I, I feel proud of it. And do you have a, within your fan base, do you have a, I mean, I'm sure you, you record a lot through that data of, of, of who your fan is. I would imagine there's a, a bit like Jaguar probably would have is a sense of romance that this is a brand that matters to people as you say aston martin is a is a is a loved brand it's a james bond brand it's a lot of things do, do you really play on that so that you go after the maybe the floating fan who is looking for uh, the the romance of f1 but isn't necessarily in bed with another of the teams well yeah that's that's part of it we kind of divided that into three areas you have kind of the hardcore fans you have the casual fans and you have the non-fans and we want to kind of go after all of them we want to be the big funnel uh, to get as many people interested, uh, there'll be a 15-year-old kid who just likes the brand, and there'll be a 25-year-old who can buy a hat, and there might be a 40-year-old who can buy a car. We had a big, big funnel as possible to bring that down to ultimately uh, some of those people we might buy an Aston Martin. Uh, so, uh, but we, we've got to be the big funnel to bring it down to the funnel to approach all those people. So, if you saw our car launch, we had the rapper Dave introduce it. I think people were really well pressed maybe i'm patting ourselves in the back but surprised or thought wow that's different and you'll, you'll see our social channels and the influences we involve and the, the, our campaign now uh, the i am campaign a real uh strategic approach to reaching out to a lot of people and making them feel a part of this team and uh it's, it is being reflected in the numbers that we're getting and giles we actually you know one of the reasons aston is activating with us is because we can rejuvenate the brand a bit as well the brand needs to be rejuvenated. It needs to sell itself in places like China and the United States. The DBX is the new SUV that's come out. That's got a different demographic. 
The company obviously wasn't doing well financially before Lawrence injected the capital. So they've got a, so it's almost a perfect marriage because it's not Ferrari. The company is, you know, has had some challenges, um, but it's got a big, big upside. And that's where the F1 team plays a big role by trying to bring in more fans and being fans of Aston Martin who might not have been fans before that like the brand because of what we're doing uh, in F1. Jeff, can I ask you, we on this podcast, we've, um, we've talked regularly about the Drive to Survive Netflix documentary series. We're all huge fans of it. I think it's, it's been, from the outside, a fantastic thing for, for Formula One. How has that changed things on the inside? Obviously, Mercedes weren't involved in the first season, um, and then suddenly they're in the next season having seen how successful it was. How has it, how has it kind of been received on the inside? What are the kind of pros and cons of having the cameras all around, and how has it changed the way you've looked at communicating through that medium? I think it's a game changer. I, I think uh, it, it would, to the previous discussion, it's gotten people that don't know anything about Formula One into it because of the yeah. story and the behind it. And um, I just last last night with my son watched the one with the Checo and winning the race. And you know, it, it, it's emotional and it shows the story behind it that you don't get even in Formula One. I, I think it's uh, extraordinary, it's transformational for the sport. Do that combined with the fact. Miami was announced yesterday and hopefully will be a third U.S. race in another year or two. And if you get the U.S. market and get those tech companies, you know, when Oracle did their, announced their deal with Red Bull, Ariel Kalman, the CMO of Oracle, said, look, this is a trend of tech companies getting involved in Formula One. And that, this is a, a real uh, opportunity for the sport because in the two world's two biggest markets, Formula One isn't really endemic there. Uh, and it, it's got a big growth despite the fact already being a, a very popular global sport. So a drive to survive is just a really big piece of that process. And, and what is it? Just give us a, a sense of what it's like to have those cameras around all the time because the beauty, I think, of that series for the, for the, kind of, for the viewer is it, it, it does feel warts and all. We, we are privy to an awful lot of things. I'm mean, sure there's plenty they cut out, but we, it, they strike the right yeah. balance, I think, between taking us behind the scenes and feeling like, we're seeing the anger and the frustration as well as the, you know, the joy and the jubilation of victory. But what's it like having those crews around all the time? Do you, or do you not see them after a while? Well, they're not actually around. So what they do is they, they, they'll embed with uh, a team for a weekend and you know that ahead of time and they'll embed with you twice a year or whatever that is, depending on which team it is. And then they're around, but the rest of the time they're not, I mean, they're there, but they're not kind of inside and out or they'll, in our case, last year they came and interviewed Lawrence and you know, toured uh, the factories at Gaydon for yeah. Aston Martin, things like that. So they'll focus, and of course they want to tell the story of the whole sport and multiple teams. Uh, so they'll do that. So it's not it's not invasive at, at all. It's not it's not some something that changes. There obviously television cameras and people everywhere in the paddock. Yeah, so true. You don't certainly don't feel you certainly don't feel that uh, all of a sudden you're you know you're, you're uh, big brother or something. That that works fine. And Jeff, where do you see Formula One? In 10, 15 years' time, you, t- you talked to, you touched on sustainability environments. And I know that's been a big discussion point and, and evolution. So be a crystal ball, be a soothsayer for us. 15, 20 years, whatever, doesn't matter. But w- the sport feels like it's in a real, there's a bit of a renaissance. And as you say, for, for, for the documentary, it's bringing its life to new people, which is really exciting. There are technical things happening, which some people like and some people don't. But where is it in 15 years' time? Well, I think the other, well, if I can just add, I think Liberty, and I, I'd never met 
Bernie Ecclestone, and obviously he's one of the greatest entrepreneurs in sports. But Liberty has brought a long-term view of this uh, to this, which is also fundamental. So I think that's a big change. And they get that they need to make it younger and more relevant, and that's what they're doing. So if you take that uh, and you combine that with the fact that it's a great tech platform, you combine that with the fact that last year showed you can do back-to-back-to-back races. I mean, I know it's tough on some of the team and the family, but you can get to 23, 24, 25 races. You have three in the United States. I think this is the global platform in sports to demonstrate technology, and I think it will continue to do that. I think it's it's challenges around sustainability are frankly a lot more PR uh, than they are reality. And the, the reality is that the Formula One engine is the most efficient engine in the world. It's a six-cylinder engine putting out that kind of horsepower. I mean, these with with you know with with it's a hybrid. Uh, but nobody really thinks about that. You know, obviously the the the, the, the carbon burned is much more by the flying around with all the stuff than it is the engines. And so when they go to renewable energy engines, say hydrogen in 2026, I think the sport will just be booming. Uh, So I think, again, liberty, the turnaround, the advent of technology, the globalization, the fact that people are looking for meaningful things, I I think as long as the sport manages itself well, uh, it it, it will will thrive. Jeff, um Liberty, let, let, let me throw you a little bit of a curveball here. Um, one of the big challenges, and we said this, we've always been a huge fan of Formula One on this podcast. One of the big challenges was the dominance of Mercedes. Um, don't be diplomatic, but would it be fair to say that the way that you're they're coming after you and Mercedes for the rake is them trying to balance the whole thing? I see your guys are getting tooled up legally for this. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm not a tech guy, and, and I won't be diplomatic. I'll tell you what I think. I, I, but I, I, I have no inside information as to you know whether there was any deliberate effort to target Mercedes, and and I don't think they were targeting us because I think actually Aston Martin's return to the grid was one of the great things for Formula One. I mean, that's a great brand to be involved, and in. I think Formula One itself wants Aston Martin and wants Aston Martin to do well. So I think anybody's uh, claiming that there's some uh, program against Smart. Um, you could certainly understand that there's frustration that the Mercedes has won seven straight years and there's a dominance and you can see it now. The racing has been really exciting the first two races. So as a third party, you could, you could get that. I don't have any idea whether it was just a consequence. It was deliberate or not, uh, Roger. It's not, uh, I, I don't have any visibility on that. I think that's part of the game and we got to adapt and, it's definitely hurt us this year. It's really been hard, uh, but that's that's uh, the sport, and you got to adapt to it and move on. So I, 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 but I, I don't, I don't have any inside information as to whether uh, there's been things done deliberately or was just a consequence. There's a you know, an explanation that they've put out there, and you can believe that or not believe it. I don't know. Okay, um, but let's assume, as you say, um, technically they've hurt you. Uh, and Mercedes, maybe you were just a, a collateral damage, but uh, they certainly hurt you with the, the rake. Um, let, let's 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 um, segue that into Lawrence's aims, your own aims. Um, it's not been a great start, has it? You know, especially from the ex-world champion. There's even some talk that um, Vettel perhaps uh, isn't 
much longer for this world. How do you manage to kind of like balance everything you're trying to do at Brand uh, beyond Formula One with Aston Martin, with um, sport, which is unscripted drama, which can't go as well as you would hope when you're doing your marketing plans? Look, in, in any sport, uh, you know, having worked in football, and, you, you know, you, you, you can't control the pitch and uh, the players and how the manager does and what happens. And, you know, just it's part of the beauty and the drama of sport because all of us that have worked in it go into the matches or the races. And, you know, it's just a, one of the great feelings and frustrations, but it's a passion and it's an involvement that I think you get in very few other sectors and jobs so you start with that we can't control that roger it's not what we do we try and build up the the fan base of the team we try and communicate well uh, we try and bring in revenues to help our our, our cargo faster and we have long-term deals with almost with all of our new partners and i think they look long term and i think long term we'll get there and uh you know if this year is a setback it's a bit of a setback but next year the rules are totally different they are so completely different a completely different car, so yep. it'll be a, it'll be a complete reset. Uh, I think this has been last year would be difficult because you had two years of these rigs, but we don't, you know. And and this is part of sport, so we're in this for the long run. The Aston Martin brand is going to continue. Lawrence is in this; he's got a lot of his capital tied up in this, uh, and and you know we'll we'll write it out. I, so far, our response has been to try and over deliver to our partners. So the amount of content that we're creating, the events that we're creating. Um, and we are trying to do everything we can to make sure that whatever the results are on the track, this still becomes meaningful for them. And even the partners doing business together, which is already happening in Cognizant's a $45 billion company. Many of our other partners would love to do business with Cognizant and vice versa. So we're, we're putting people together. And at the end of the day, even if we were terrible, but they were making money out of it. And Giles will tell you this, you know, if we went to HSBC and said, well, you spent five, but you made 20. Let's say keep going. <laughs> that's not a problem with that, Giles. So, you know, that that's that's we've got to get to the business case that this works for them. And obviously being more successful on a track helps you. But last year we were really good and you know that helped. And we'll be we'll get back there whether it's this year or next year. I'm very comfortable with that. Lawrence is not uh, he's not a mid table. No, guy. he's not. He's not. <laughs> he's not. But Jeff, let you, you mentioned something there uh, which I think everybody that listeners to this podcast would want to talk about. You've put nine new partners, new sponsors, whatever word you want to call, onto your roster immediately. I think it would be fair to say that um, in the past, sports sponsorship has been a little bit about signing the deal and then, you know, sitting back for the renewal time and, and the world has changed. Tell me a little bit about how you service a sponsor these days. What do sponsors look for? Are, are they interested in awareness or how much kind of like deep data are they coming to Mr. Jefferson Slack and saying, what can you get me, please? I think everybody would like to hear somebody on the front line telling us how modern sports sponsorship is. Starts with the objective of the company. So as I mentioned, because of the fact it's Aston Martin and Formula One, a lot of our, our, our partners are B2B focused. So they're interested in C-suite access. So if you're cognizant, you know, you're trying to get to Fortune 1000 companies that spend a lot of money in, in digital transformation and trying to get access to their C-suite people, uh, which is a particular set of objectives. Uh, and, and that is where races are actually great. Well, obviously, we have a, 
COVID challenge, but we'll get back to having an open paddock and the ability to meet people and those relationships that were sports really does work. Uh, it, it, it works to go and meet somebody and spend a day doing something that's interesting and, and talking about ways that you can work together. So there's that element of it. There's the, the branding and, you know, we, we've got uh, metrics that we measure quantifiable, uh, you know, we, we, we just did this the other day for Aston itself and we've generated, I think that the adjusted number was seven or $8 million worth of social media value for them in the first three months. And that was a quantifiable, you know, actually looking at the post and the quality of the post. It wasn't just, as we all know, these numbers can get a little bit blown up. You know, this is real numbers. So to, 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 to quantify the exposure that they're getting, and I, I think that's another thing that we're doing. We're creating content with them so we can tell the stories and we're creating specialized events uh, so that, you know, it may be that there is an ice driving event or a golf tournament or something that really can make it one-to-one that combines with some of the assets or a driving day on Silverstone with Aston Martins. I mean, things that kind of money can't buy stuff that the CIO of a company might attend just because it sounds like a lot more fun. And then all of a sudden you get some business out of it. So trying to create environments that work for them. Peroni is probably uh, what is the most B2C and, and I think almost the most sophisticated for marketers because they sell beer. And if you don't know what you're doing in that you come yeah. out product, uh, and they're really good because they're pushing us uh, and they've got great people behind them. And we just hired someone she started today to work more with them. And they're creating great content and, and, and great ideas and they bring influencers so they can help build our brand base as well. Uh, but, you know, we've got to keep up with them. So we're building out the organization, Roger, to do that uh, because that's a lot of new partners to add. So, so far, it's been pretty good. And, um, you know, we'll, we need more people to, to, to service this. But I, I don't, it's not sign the deal and walk away. It just doesn't work like, it doesn't make any sense, even just from a self-interest yeah. standpoint. We might be here to, we've got a great base of partners. And if we just keep those, that base of partners and build on that, we'll have an economically viable team with a lot of good revenue. So. Uh, we're investing big in that. And Jeff, do, do sponsors now, are you hearing the, the, the data question being asked more and more? I mean, how much do you know who your fan is? Your own, you know, obviously Facebook knows who the fans are, but do you know? And are you making investments in that to own your own first party data so that you can go back to sponsors with something to say empirically and definitively, this is who the fan is and this is where they live, their demographic? Has that been, I mean, that's the big shift in the industry. Has that something you've experienced, particularly with a technological sport like F1? Uh, uh, yeah, yes. Uh, look, it's it's uh, a fundamental objective. We have Giles. I hired a guy from Two Circles uh, we have, uh, I don't know how many other teams do that. We have a full-time data scientist is just doing that. I, I'm not hearing that much from our partners yet on that because that's more B2C broad-based. And again, as I said earlier, uh, most of our main partners are very B2B. Uh, so that's data set. Although within the, 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 the people that we know, we even identify who are Aston customers. We've been able to then work with Aston on that. So we are working uh, in some areas, but right now I'm trying to get as many people as we can. Uh, we started from almost zero. Uh, we're up over 100,000. We want to keep taking that up. Um, and we do that through registering through our IM program uh, on our website, as you rightly say, but it's Facebook. We, I mean, we publish through them, but we don't, we don't, uh, we don't know who those people are. Um, so yeah, we have an absolute strategy. I haven't seen yet that be an impediment or uh, huge interest yet for our 
partners. But again, take Cognizant. They have 300,000 employees. So we actually are de- developing employee programs for them. We just started a website uh, that they have to sign into where their employees can buy merchandise uh, with a big discount. So it's things like that that they've been asking for. So again, data, yes, because I think long-term that's fundamental. So we put in structure in place to incentivize people and, and, and pre- content for our fans. But I, so far uh, with our existing sponsor base, that, that's not what doing. And I don't even think it's that efficient. It's an additive thing. But it's not, if somebody wants just efficient buy, you just go buy social at the lowest CPM you can, right? Um, so this is more qualitative and we're, we're trying to get there, but we're at the, we're at the nascent, nascent stages of that. Jeff, um, we mentioned Liberty a little bit and a lot of credit to what has happened with Formula One, uh, Drive to Survive and everything has been uh, through Liberty. But Liberty has got a change in a CEO. Um, what do you see... Uh, or what are you hearing, the changes between Dominicali and uh, Chase Carey? Um, tell us a little bit about how Liberty are operating, because it's a funny structure, Formula One, as you say, they control so much of it, you control something else as a distribution of money. What is this new CEO, this Italian CEO, ex-Ferrarista, what, what are you seeing from your end? Yeah, I've never met Stefano, uh, so it's hard for me to comment personally. I can tell you what we've I've heard about him, he's extremely experienced guy in Formula One that goes without saying. Chase obviously didn't have a lot of uh, F1 experience, but Chase came to the table with uh, really good U.S. skill sets. And one of the first things he said is we've got to get a cost cap in here because you can't have teams spending three, four times what other teams are yeah. spending and, you know, make this. And he did it. So he actually did it. Uh, now you've got a guy who's, a, you know, pro- not probably, is definitely more experienced in the nuts and bolts of the sport, as you said, was team principal. Ferrari and very well respected and seems a lot more detail and hands-on oriented, which I think Chase had certain key things that he had to do and he got it done. Now Stefano is going to come in and take it to the next level in terms of his understanding of the sport and even details around it, different, uh, what do you do on a Friday to make it more exciting, you know, getting into the U.S. And so it sounds like he's a lot more uh, detailed, hands-on than, than Chase. And then Chase was like, these are the three or four things that I've got to do to get this ship going in the right direction, which he seemed to have accomplished. Jeff, we, we, we started the show sort of talking about why you got into to the sports industry and, and none of us are spring chickens. I think we can all admit that. Um, you look back on, on your career and you have worked for, for some of the biggest and the greatest and you've seen, we've all seen a lot of change. Is there one... Um, the one deal that you're most proud of, one that you look back on and just that you're either partly involved or fully involved that you just feel will define the career when you hang up your when you hang up your gloves or whatever and get to the fishing rod and, and look back on a career as we all surely will. Is there one that you just look back with great fondness or pride? Well, as you know, kind of when you make a deal, they're all feel good. So <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, yeah. uh, I mean, and, 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 do you mind if I say two? Uh, okay. The first deal I ever did in sports when I was working for, uh, uh, pro serve, we had a tennis player named Aaron Crickstein, even though I was in team sports, I talked to some company and they ended up, uh, wanting a tennis player, uh, appearance. And I didn't tennis uh, an appearance for Aaron Crickstein. I don't, I made $25,000 and pro serve made $1,800. And my commission check was $23 and 25 cents. And I wanted to frame that, but then they didn't pay me that in the payroll. 
they waited till the next month and I had some more commissions and they put it all together and I couldn't afford not to cash the check. <laughs> so, so I never get Aaron Krigstein. It was 20, you know, and I'd been promised, of course, David Falk was one of the great negotiators. I was going to make all this money in commissions in my first commission. Uh, second deal. I mean, look, there's a number of them. The Qatar foundation deal with Barcelona, the first time Barcelona shirt, uh, the Cognizant deal, frankly. But, uh, this one it would be closer to you, Giles. Uh, you probably don't know I was involved with the Aviva uh, naming rights deal in Ireland. Uh, when I was at Wasterman, we worked on that. And we started when the Celtic Tiger was booming in 2007. And we finished in February 2009 when the country was essentially bankrupt. And we still did that deal. And that deal got done, I think, at the, at the, the, it was literally more than one euro per person in the country for 10 years. For every single person in the country, and we did that at the height of the financial crisis. And the contract itself gave Aviva no way out, even if both teams didn't play. And of course, at some point later, the FA got in a bunch of trouble. And then, of course, you had a pandemic. So I was very proud of that because, you know, I don't know that you could have had worse market conditions. And I was also concerned because you had Lansdowne Road, which was there since 1860s. And we were going to change it now. Evidently, it was renewed because the CEO of Aviva went was taking a taxi to the stadium and he said, you know, take me to Lansdowne Road. And the guy said, oh, you mean the Aviva? So, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that, 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 that felt pretty good. So that was, a, that was a hard deal to do. And we got that done. Great stuff. Jeff, it's been, uh, it's been a fantastic hour. Um, thank you so much for, for spending the time for, for, for all of us. You know, for, we've, we've been huge fans of Formula One on this, on this show for, for the longest time. So it's, it's great to get some insight into uh into the business and and also to get a chance to to kind of listen to your history and 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 a sense of where the where the thing's going i think you're right i think the future is incredibly bright for for formula one you know this last weekend with the youngest podium ever uh i think lewis hamilton may have robbed them of that just uh, at the end but it but it's 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 an extraordinarily rude health so we wish you all the very best james and i are going to come to miami and so we'll come and we'll come and say hello when we when we get there next year Fantastic. Look forward to that. And uh, good to see all you guys again. Thank you, Jeff. So Such a time. gent. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, take care. See Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, fellas, uh, that was really, really interesting. I have to say this, uh, the whole Formula One thing is, it's such a fascinating world because it, it it's it's still, it's almost surreal. As a fan, you, you can't help be wrapped up in it. But of every sport I think there is, it's the most complex, the most complicated, and the, and the one that you really know the least about if you're just an armchair fan. You know what I mean? Yeah, and well, and what I would say is it was very interesting, his answer is I still think this is a sport that's going through a, a, another renaissance. There's a lot of positivity on and off the track. And yet I felt some of his answers, I would say this, wouldn't I, is that still Formula One doesn't necessarily um, harvest the fan base that it has nearly as efficiently as it could. And I think there is a lot of value that... Um, that they will find um, under the ground of, of, of a global fan base. As he says, there may be more races to come. This is a growing sport with changing uh, formats as, as things move forward. And I, I think they're on 50% power. I think yeah, there's that, much that, more that was, to that come. That's a big disconnect. With, I agree. And certainly as with our, with our sponsor, Pumpjack, I suspect they're licking their lips. They would love to, to get involved with their Formula One teams like that as they are with one or two already, because once you've got your fan base sorted and you know who they are, you've got something really, really powerful to sell sponsors who are already halfway there because of what's going on in the sport. It becomes a slam dunk. I've yeah. seen some of the, the merchandise that a fan like James wears. And let me tell you, if you can sell that to people, you can sell anything to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, isn't, isn't it interesting that um, 
they're ta- there's no relegation in Formula One, is there? Just coming back to what we said at the start of the show about the Super League, there's no relegation uh, in Formula One. Uh, it's very it's very American already. Nobody complains about that. Um, they are all about levering, um, uh, leveling out the, the the competitive field. We talked about a little bit of that on the show, and, and the the budget caps uh, will will do that more and more. And I don't see any pushback on that. And that's why we've been, I think, very bullish on Formula One for two or three years now. It's moving into the future and managing to let go all the baggage that we're seeing uh, uh, football having to deal with now. Uh, I I believe Formula One has got, as you said, Grant, uh, a wonderful future. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, all that remains is for us to thank our guest, Jeff Slack, for his time, which is wonderful, and to thank you for listening. Uh, We appreciate each and every one of you. Again, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be wonderful. Uh, You can find us on Twitter, should you wish to follow us there. You're not already. You'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word, A-R-E. You can find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can find myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, as always, fun and games. Let's do it again sometime. Cheers, Matt. Perfect. Perfect.